Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Working is supported by Delta Airlines, whose new Delta Studio provides all kinds of streaming entertainment in the sky, including movies and TV shows, all on your personal devices. Learn more at Delta.com. Delta, keep climbing. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm David Plotz. What's your name and what do you do? Reverend Dr. Howard John Wesley, uh, the senior pastor of Alfred Street Baptist Church here in Alexandria, Virginia. And how do you become a pastor? <laughs> uh, I don't know if you actually become one or you're chosen or it's a sense of a calling. Many pastors have a sense that the Lord has called them to this assignment and I received a calling which I thought was just to preach way back in 1989 when I was only 16. But somewhere along that journey in the 1994 realm, I felt like the Lord was calling me to a higher level and to work with his people. And so when I left undergrad, I went to seminary, uh, worked on my master's divinity to get the formal education and training. And it was from there that the Lord provided the first opportunity for me to pastor a church in, in Springfield, Mass. What is the first thing that you do when you come to work on a weekday morning? Let's not take a Sunday to begin with. Let's take a weekday morning. Uh, the very first thing I'll do is come in the office, uh, try to beat all the staff here. I'll come in, close the door, uh, kind of get settled. Before I open up any folder or briefing or emails that are waiting on me, I go to my little prayer altar and kneel down and ask the Lord for guidance for today, try to quiet my spirit, take time to read some scripture, and then I have a list of concerns for the church, typically our sick members or some pending issues that I just want to pray for guidance for, because I realize today or the next day, I'm probably going to have to make some real difficult decisions. I want to be certain that I'm peaceful and quiet and hearing the Lord's voice before I make those decisions. 
and what time of the day is that and how long does that first prayer usually last? I try to take my first hour in the office to just be still, to not do office work. I'm here by like 8.15, 8.30, and I won't take my first meeting until about 10. What are the tasks that tend to occupy you during the weekdays, during people's, everyone's traditional working hours? Well, I guess it depends on what day it is. The, uh, the crazy part of my job is that it's very monotonous and that the weeks always look the same. Tuesday's always the same. Wednesday's always the same. Thursday's always the same, just in terms of the scope of the work. But on any given day, it's always going to be majorly different in terms of what gets done that day. So Tuesday, I typically deem my administrative day. I have uh, department head meetings, and I'll meet with my managers. I'll meet with my direct reports all in preparation for our staff meeting, which begins at 11 o'clock on Tuesdays. And that typically goes from 11 to 1230. Um, Afterwards, I'll have what I call my executive council. I'll meet with my chair, my board of trustees, the chair of deacons, and the church administrator. And we sit down at a real macro uh, level and talk about some of the issues that we're facing in church and make some executive decisions. From there, I'll take lunch and typically come back and have some more department head meetings, a building committee meeting. Then around three thirty, four o'clock, I start shutting down and get ready to teach Bible study on Tuesday nights that I teach to um, our adult class of about two to 300 people that come out, so I need to be prepared to teach on Tuesdays. So Tuesday's the longest day of the week. I used to call them terrible Tuesdays, but the Lord slapped my hand about that calling any day terrible. But Tuesdays start at about 8.15 and don't end till 9 p.m. What about the other days? Wednesday is typically the time I avail myself to office hours to meet with members. So we'll come in and start from 10 and go to about 3 or 4 with meetings on the half hour. Uh, With a congregation of about 6,000, there's always someone who wants to meet with the pastor, either for counsel, for prayer, casting a vision, want to ask questions about the church, new members who want to join and want to understand our doctrine, want to know some things about me, want to know some things about the vision of the church. So typically, Wednesdays, um, I'm meeting with members and trying to sneak in some hospital visits if I've got open time. Even though we're large, I still like to have a hands-on with our sick and our shut-in. And then I'll have a little bit of a break. And Wednesday evenings and Thursday evenings are typically committee meetings for our large committees, so like the deacons meeting, a trustee meeting, a ministry that's gathering together, um, a large program that's coming up there, training their volunteers. So Wednesdays, I'm typically here in the evening having large meetings with groups as opposed to individuals. Let's go back to the parishioners who are coming in to meet with you. You, you gave some specific examples. Give a few more. What, what are the really particular kinds of things that people want to talk to the pastor about? Wow. Uh, well, without, you know, breaking confidentiality, because obviously I don't have to name individuals, the number one question that comes in the office are people who are trying to discover what is God's will for me. So they want to share context of their life and ask, well, pastor, what do you think? Which way is God directing me? Those who are coming in with what I consider therapy issues, um, a bereavement, a loss of a loved one, hospice, uh, someone in the family is terminally ill, someone that's in their circle of friends that's drug addicted. I have some who come in who've been sexually molested or abused and just want to cry and be in a safe space. So it's almost like I'm a therapist, even though I'm just a pastor, you know, but people feel comfortable in sharing their personal life issues. I suppose, again, this must vary tremendously from person to person, but are you there to listen, to ask questions, to, or to, to give answers, or maybe, maybe all of those things? I think they come in with the hope that I'll give answers, but I've quickly learned in this job what people deal with is typically much greater than my skill set. So I typically listen. I will end every 
counseling session by holding hands and praying with them. Um, I think most people, that's when they feel the real sense that they've gotten a touch. So I pray with them. And then I'm quick to direct them towards more professional counseling and therapists. We have Christian counselors within our church as well as in the community that we're connected to. And there's some people that come in and I know you need to sit and speak with someone else two, three more times. Unfortunately, I can't be that person, but I'm going to direct you to someone um, who I'd ask you to take a look at. That's Wednesday. What what about Thursday, Friday, there are the other parts of the week? Thursday typically can be some of the more uh, more the same with meetings with staff and ministry heads. We have 70 active ministries in the church. They all have different visions, programs, and they want to run ideas by me. But typically on Thursdays, I don't come in until about noon. Um, I try to spend Thursday morning in meditation and sermon development, beginning to shape that sermon for Saturday and Sunday, which is one of the critical you know moments of the life of our church. Thursday evening, I typically have more uh, ministry meetings in the evening. And then Friday, I try to stay out of the office and just write sermons. Sermon Friday is sermon writing day. You know, that's the sermon's got to be done, finished up, polished so that I can start memorizing it because our first worship experience is Saturday evening and I've got to be ready to preach on Saturday evening. Saturday, however, very seldom gives me a lot of private time. Um, I've got two young boys, so I'm always out and about with something with them. We have weddings on Saturday. If you think about it, that's when most of our members are off on the weekends. So if we have like a sports walk or a biking or a motorcycle ride, it's typically on Saturday mornings. And so I've got to show up typically in the office because that's when the people gather together. They just want to see the pastor's face, pray with them, maybe start the walk with them and then back out. But Saturdays are typically kind of busy and buzzing because that's when most of our members are off and are on church campus. Is Monday a day off? Or there is no day off? I'm confused here. Well, they're supposed to be a day off, and I'm probably a bad model of that. I'm supposed to model having Sabbath. And for us, Sabbath isn't just about a day of worship. It's about a day of rest. So I try to make Monday my Sabbath. It doesn't always work out like that. Typically, if there is a funeral, it's going to show up on a Monday. Uh, Monday is also a time when I have to have some special meetings. So if we've got a crisis going on in church and we need to have a meeting, typically things get shoved in on Monday. How many sermons do you give on a, on a given weekend? I will stand and preach three times between um, Saturday and Sunday, and we're getting ready to go to four. And is that the same speech three or four times, or is it three different speeches? It's the same sermon in the sense that I will use the same scripture text and probably the same outline. It comes out a little bit differently, obviously. Um, I'm not a manuscript preacher, so I don't read from a manuscript. You know, African-American congregation, there's there's a call and response narrative that shapes the preaching. So it, it's supposed to be the same so that members won't stick around. If members knew I was preaching a different sermon Sunday, 8 o'clock versus Sunday, 11, they would stay. And the idea is for you to come and leave so that other people can get in because we have a larger membership than we have space to accommodate. Go back to last week. So when you start to think about what, what you were going to preach on that weekend, how did what was the first thought you had? Why did you have it? And how did that develop during the course of the sermon development process? Well, last week was a little different because I'm, I was in the midst of a series. And that, to me, is great preaching. So I'm linking up a sermon from one week to the next to the next, then with a theme. So the theme I was dealing with over the last four weeks was 
learning how to really make substantive change in your life, that all of us know what it's like to identify a change you want to make and struggle to get through that. So for four weeks, we looked at different individuals in the Bible who were able to make significant change. So that was easier for me because I knew from one week to the next what was coming. But there's some weeks when there's not a series in place and the sermon is just kind of singular and standalone. And those sermons can be guided by a couple of things. It can be guided by the season we're in. So if we're in Advent or Lent or Pentecost season, you know, I'm dealing with the birth of Christ or issues around his death and resurrection. So sometimes those guide it. Sometimes it's driven by what's happening in the world. Like when Trayvon Martin's shooting, I had to address that. When 9-11 came, you had to speak about that. With war breaking out in this area, you know, we have so many servicemen and servicewomen in our church. So sometimes the issue in our culture will shape what I feel the Lord wants to speak in the sermon. Other times it may simply have been a real struggle that I was uh, put into with someone in counseling. So that I know that if I meet with a member who's wrestling with their parent about to die, that's probably not the only member in there. And that, that we have members in our church across the board who know what it's like to lose a loved one. So I may feel this, the calling of the Lord to write a sermon about when it's time to say goodbye. Let's pick that as a good example. So the, was that a real sermon? That you, yes. So you had the inspiration or the, the germ of it, which is that you were dealing with a, a parishioner who had this issue. Then how did you develop it? What is your process? And how did you write that sermon? Okay. Well, for me, sermons begin in one of two places. Uh, since we're a Baptist church, the scripture, the Holy Word of God, the Bible is very critical to us. So I'll start in one of two places. Either I have an issue that's burning on my heart or I have a passage of scripture I want to teach and preach from. For me, the very first step in sermon writing is identifying which one I have and then find the other. So in this instance, I had a yearning in my heart, a leaning from the Holy Spirit to preach on losing a loved one. So the very first step for me then is to find a passage that might address that, or even better, a passage in scripture where someone is about to lose a loved one. Give an example, Mary standing at the cross watching her son die. She knows he's about to die. She's got to get ready for that. Or the disciples realizing he's about to die. Or Paul realizing it's his last days and he's writing to Timothy, his son in the ministry, trying to prepare Timothy for Paul's death. So I'll take the relevant life issue and try to find some synonymous scripture where that issue is being addressed so that we can look at it from scripture and not simply from what I think or what I feel or what my perspective may be. In that case, what was the passage that you that you decided really to focus on? Um, on that one, it was Paul preparing Timothy for his death and giving him a charge and a commandment to follow on and to rejoice knowing that the work continues in Timothy and that this was not something that should halt him. It would hurt him, but it shouldn't halt him. And how in our lives, when we lose loved ones, there is a time when we press pause and then there's a time when you've got to press play. So you had your issue and you had your scripture, then it's Friday. Well, how are you? Do you write it by hand? Do you sit in front of a computer? Is this something that, you, that comes to you in paragraphs in your head? How do you rehearse it? Do you stand in front of a mirror? What, what's the process there? Typically on Thursday, I do what's called my exegetical homework. So I'm going to be doing a lot of research on the text I'm preaching from, the cultural norms and mores that may have shaped it. I'm going to be trying to do research on Timothy, on Paul. So I'm putting all that paperwork together. I'm Xeroxing articles. I'm doing research on what's called our ATLA database, the American Theological Library Association. I'm Googling stuff. So I'm trying to pull a lot of research together. Then on Friday comes the sermon writing. 
And that's probably the most difficult thing for me because I'm very linear. I can't write a sermon in the middle and then back out to the introduction. I have to start at the beginning and work my way through it. So there's an introduction. There's a transition to the biblical text. There's the exegetical work of the biblical text. And then there's the what does the text say about the relevant life issue that I'm trying to preach. And so I'll start by creatively trying to write an introduction. I believe in a, in a sermon, you've got three minutes to answer the most critical question. And that is, why do I want to hear you for the next 20? You know, I've got to grab the listener. And so I, I work very hard at engaging introductions, introductions that are funny or raise a relevant issue. And from there, I will then try to transition into the Bible. So to answer your question, I, I typically write. I'll have a lot of uh, what I call just kind of x lax I'm just going to write a bunch of stuff, you know, throw out ideas for introduction, ideas about the text. Then they're going to start to come together. So what, what looks like 18 pages of random notes will then start to combine itself into what is ultimately a three-page strong outline. I know if it's more than three pages, it's gonna, the sermon is going to be too long. I want to have that done by Friday because Saturday, all I'm doing is going over that in my head, that my preparation process is that once the manuscript is done, what I do is I close my eyes and I try to walk through the sermon in my head without the paper. Do I know my introduction? Do I know what my first idea is? Do I know what I'm saying next? Do I know what comical point? Do I know what illustration I want to use? And the more I go through it in my head, the better it prepares me so that when I stand on Saturday, I can preach without necessarily looking down at those three pages. People love to feel you give them eye contact, that you're engaging them, that you understand this is a verbal presentation. And to connect with you, I need you to be looking at me. And so I try very, to work very hard at the gift of memory and memorizing the sermon, not necessarily verbatim, but big chunks. Like I don't need to read every word off the paper. I just need to be certain that I get the idea out. And once I get the idea out, I can move on. So I don't need to be locked into a manuscript as much as see it in my head so that I can speak it out of my mouth. On the scripture, how do you make sure you get it right? I mean, do you have the whole scripture memorized or, or do you write the text out there just so you know it's there? No, typically I will just make a scripture reference, say Luke 12 and 1. And I'm either going to do two things, either allude to it and kind of suggest what it says, or yes, I've memorized it. I've spent the bulk of my life memorizing scripture. Um, and that is, I'm not going to say a gift, but it's something the Lord has pressed on my heart to do. And so there's certain scriptures that are foundational that I have memorized verbatim. And I can see Romans 8:28 and know that that scripture says all things work together for good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I can see John 3:16. you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believed him should not. Even, even I know that one. That's, right. that's, I've seen golf tournaments. You know, you see that everywhere. But, you know, there, there are certain passages that, you know, that I, I really have put to memory. And if in the sermon there's a new passage, I want to memorize that one. And I think that that helps people desire to want to learn Scripture when they see that you've embedded it in your heart and in your memory. It sounds like you spend somewhere between 25-40% of your time on preparing your sermon and then the act of giving the sermon and, and, and preaching on Sunday. Why is that so critical? For a couple reasons. One, that's when our church is really gathered together. I can meet with ministries, but that's 30 people. I can meet with an individual. That's one. But over the course of weekend worship, I get to address and speak to 4,500 people in-house. And we have over 5,000 people watching us online every weekend. And so that's when the largest gathering is coming together. And that's when people desire to be fed the word of God. It's, it's the most visible part of my job. It's also a time when people 
come to feel that they're going to connect with the Lord. I take that very seriously. I take it very seriously that I have an assignment to stand and be a voice piece for the Lord, not my politics, not my own beliefs, not my own leanings, not to make people copycats of me, but to sincerely stand there and say, this is what the Lord has ordered me to share with you today that's going to bless your life. And then finally, most people come to church believing that God is going to speak something that helps them. So when I do one-on-one counseling, when I preach, I'm really counseling 4,500 people. And I laughingly tell people, most times you come to my office to meet with me for me to tell you privately what I've already said publicly in the sermon. So whereas I can't meet with the entire membership one-on-one, I can counsel them sermonically on Sundays. And so that's, that's a critical moment for us and for me. Do you uh, test your sermons with anybody before you give them, or is the Saturday night sermon the first time anyone else hears it? No, there's never a test period, man. I'm I'm so sometimes insecure about it and nervous, I wouldn't even share with the people closest to me. Like, my mother lives with me, and I won't tell her what the sermon's about, because I want her to experience it fresh for the first time when she hears it. The only person I will talk to, I have a preaching partner, uh, Dr. Marcus Cosby, who lives in Houston, Texas. He preaches on the weekend as well, and we run our sermons by each other. We call ourselves preaching partners, so we rub our sermons off one another. But Saturday is the first time I get up and preach it. Now, it's funny. Saturday, I always call it my first draft, my first oral draft, because I'll get up on Saturday and I'll preach it. And typically, I tell myself that was the worst performance of that sermon. I know now where it's going to grow. So Saturday night, while I'm resting, I'm also thinking about how to make this sermon better. So typically by eight o'clock, it's better than it was for me, at least on Saturday. And then by Sunday, 11, it's fine tuned. It's polished. You know, we've gotten the kinks out. I know what areas I needed to tighten up. I know what areas were funny. I know what areas I need to cut back on the 11 o'clock crowd, which is the last one. They get the sermon that's been polished. The Saturday, 6 p.m. gets the first rough draft. The Working Podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines, whose new Delta Studio provides more streaming entertainment in the sky. Movies, shows, TV, all on your personal devices. Additionally, Delta's long-haul fleet not only has more flatbed seats, but more flatbed seats available with direct aisle access. Learn more at Delta.com. Delta, keep climbing. And now back to my interview. On Sunday and on Saturday, besides giving your sermon, what is the other work that you're doing in leading service? Well, the best part of my job is before every worship service, I come out about a half hour early and I shake the hand of everyone who's in the sanctuary and just speak to them. How are you doing today? Because I don't get to touch members enough, you know, at the size we are. And that to me is the best part of my job. It's hands on. It's eye contact. It's shaking hands. It's helping me talk to you and you say, would you please pray for my mother? And then next week, I remember that you said that. So I'll come to you and ask you, how's your mother doing? It makes members feel like they matter, that you've given them one-on-one attention. So I'll shake every hand in the sanctuary, in the balcony, and in the overflow and prayerfully get back to the pulpit before worship begins. That is the best part of my day. And after service on Sunday, are you done? After service on Sunday, I crash. I don't like afternoon or evening work on Sunday because I've, I've physically and spiritually exhausted myself. I've stood to preach three times, and I'm very energetic when I preach. Um, I'm probably very tired. I've shaken no less than two, 3,000 hands, spoken to two, 3,000 people, so I'm done. I'm no longer pastor. I'm going into Howard John mode or daddy mode. I'm going to watch a movie with my boys, or I'm going to get out on my Harley Davidson and ride for a couple hours. Being a pastor, you're... It is a job. You are employed by a church. 
how how do you reconcile the fact that you have a job where you get a salary and you you know have to negotiate with your bosses and deal with personal problems and with your employees with the fact that you're inspired by the Lord? You know, I don't know if I actually see any any tension or conflict there. I would do this for free because it's what the Lord has called me to do. I'm grateful to have the administrative structure, though, and. You know, it is a job. I do have a board that that I lead and guide. We do have administrative work out the yin-yang. Man, I've got more, like literally, I do more outside the Bible in the pulpit than I do in the Bible and in Scripture. I've got a staff of 57 people with seven direct reports that I manage. Um, we are building a $57 million church. I have to go down to the Board of Architectural Review. I meet with City Hall. This morning, I had to meet with the mayor and the city manager about a project that we're trying to get done. You know, I sit on boards with the NAACP and the Urban League, so it really is a job. And I kind of love it because I feel like every day I'm learning something new. My skill set grows every week in this position. Nothing is the same. It's a new counseling issue. It's a new political issue. It's a new social justice issue. It's a new teaching issue. So every week I have the ability to stretch out and grow in areas that I've never learned before. And I think what drives me is that I have a healthy dose of curiosity. I always want to know more. So I've watched some YouTube videos of you preaching. It's great. Describe your style as a preacher and how you came to it. I consider myself very steeped in the African-American celebratory tradition, meaning that there's going to be call and response and there's going to be some good news. We don't sit quiet and just listen to the sermon. We engage, we talk back. And so I'm very dialogical in my preaching. I look you in the eye. I, I call out names. So in the middle of a sermon, I'm like, you know, David, isn't that crazy how such and such happens so that people feel an engagement. I tell people that if I wasn't a preacher, I would have tried stand-up comedy. I got A's in school, but I always got F's for behavior because I was a class clown. I really believe in laughter. And so if you come to one of our sermons, nine out of ten times, I'm going to have a moment where I literally try to break you down in tears in laughter. I tell a lot of stories uh, to kind of make things practical and personal. I try to be very transparent. I don't lift myself up as a model to follow, but one who's fallen enough and learned lessons. And so I think people love transparency and authenticity of a preacher who doesn't say I'm perfect, but a preacher who says, listen, I've been there. I've made that mistake. So I think when you pull all that together and you do it in 30 minutes well, people feel like it's been a good sermon. Go to that question of personal failing, because that's another thing where a pastor, it's different because you're, I mean, you're not saint. No one, you're, you're, that's not your job is not to be saint, but it is a position where people have expectations of behavior and expectations that you're going to, to live well and, and do the right thing more, maybe more than they expected of themselves. How, how do you manage the fact that you're a human being with, with failings, with the fact that you also have this role as, as, a, as a model? Well, I definitely believe I'm held to a higher moral standard than some members hold themselves to. That may be hypocritical, it may be duplicitous, but it's the nature of this calling. I joked with a member once and said, you must think I have a different Bible than you, that my Bible has different commandments for me than are for you. But people do hold us that standard. So there are a couple things. One, I'm very clear with our members that I am a man who has the same kind of struggles. Now, I've grown through some, and I would never flaunt my struggles, but I'm human, and I want them to accept me as human. But at the same time, I'm growing in Christ. And so I'm trying to grow the same way they are. I will be held accountable in judgment the same way they will over their lives. And that we all have to learn to do the best we can with our God. That I can't judge you and I don't need you to judge me. Just very recently, I've come through a divorce. And there were some members who were very disappointed by that. And then there were some who were very encouraged 
to see that I tried to handle it in a way that was respectful and that God could be seen in the midst of it because there are others who've been in there and need to know you can live through this. It doesn't have to be ugly. It doesn't have to be sinful. And so just trying to be transparent and open that I'm a work in progress. And then at the same time, David, I've learned I stay out of the public eye. One of the worst parts of this job is that because our membership is so large, anywhere I go, our members there. I don't believe there's anything wrong with having a glass of wine with dinner, but I can't always order a glass of wine when I'm out. That's tough. Members have social functions. They invite me, but I really can't go. If I go, and let's say I go to a wedding, I don't go to receptions. I don't go to receptions afterwards because that's a festive time, and people want to have alcoholic beverages, and there's nothing sinful with that. You know, depending on what tradition you come from, I don't think there's anything sinful with it, but people don't feel comfortable having a drink with their pastor at the table, right? I'm not Howard John. I'm always Reverend Dr. Howard John Wesley. I'm in the grocery store just trying to run in and grab some chicken to fix, and a member walks up to me. They want to talk, and I've got to be on. I'm your pastor. I can't ignore you and just say, hey, listen, I'm not pastor right now. I'm just getting chicken. So when I want private time, I either have to stay at home or I travel a lot. I travel to other places. That point about not being able to to go to receptions is a really interesting one. Is that is that a practice you've had your whole career? Is it something you realized as you've grown into the job? It's something I got from my father. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. My great grandfather was a pastor. There's a lot of life lessons learned from them that have been passed on, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but my dad said you can't pastor friends, and it's important in my position that. People believe I know them intimately, but I can't allow them to know me intimately. I need to know you as an individual. You need to know me as Pastor Wesley so that I can pastor you, so that we can have the right relationship. I can't always be Howard in front of someone. So if Howard wants to smoke a cigar, I can't do that in front of people because some people can't handle it. And I take that out of scripture, too, that the Apostle Paul said that all things are lawful or not expedient. What Paul understood was everything I can do, I shouldn't do, if it's going to cause someone else to stumble in their walk. But you have to be Howard sometimes. So you, I assume you have friends who maybe aren't in your church or friends from college or friends from back home or whatever it is, yes? Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm grateful. First of all, I'm in an awesome fraternity, Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, and those are not only friends, but brothers to me. I love to ride my motorcycle. I've got a group of guys that we go out riding with. I love to play golf, and on the golf course, I can light up a cigar if I want one. Uh, Those four guys, they don't judge at all. They allow me to be Howard. And like I said, I travel a lot. You're an African-American man. This is a black church. Do you think the job of pastoring a black church is different than the job of pastoring any other kind of church? There definitely are different dynamics, and that's not to be racially prejudiced in any way, but there are different dynamics when you're dealing with a collective group of African Americans. We value certain things differently, our history, our heritage, celebration. But in this position, one of the things that is unique, and typically a Baptist African American church there is a high expectation of the authority of the pastor, of a real reverence of that, that you may not see in some Caucasian or Euro-based churches where there's a board that governs the church. At the end of the day, members want to know what does pastor say. And that comes with a huge responsibility, a huge responsibility and authority. I would say other than that, it's like any other organization. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have division. You're going to have difference of thought, different perspectives. And you've got to learn how to manage that. But at the same time, know that at the end of the day, I make the final decision on just about everything at this church. 
Who is your boss? Technically, I only answer to the voting body of this church. I have no board that I report to. I am the ex officio of all boards. I am the chair of all boards. And I share in ministry with my deacons who share with me concerns of the church and pray with me and help do my annual evaluation. But ultimately, I can only lose this job by the vote of the membership of the church or by my own resignation. That's re- is that typical in churches or in Baptist churches? It's typical in most Baptist churches. Part of the identity of a Baptist church is that each church is autonomous, and depending on how they choose to govern themselves, but in our Constitution and bylaws, it take, it, it's, it's an amazing process. It takes an issue has to be brought up to say I'm not worthy to pastor. Fifty percent of the church has to say we want to hear the issue and then two-thirds of the church have to vote affirmatively to remove me. In the 210-year history of this church, no pastor has ever, ever lost his employment by that vote. I take it from hearing you talk about this that being a pastor is how you're going to spend your life. Do you think you will be a pastor of a church for, for your working life? The majority, but not the finality. Um, too many pastors don't plan for their succession and the fact that another pastor has to come after them. They don't retire correctly, and they work until they die. And that is not going to be my model. My predecessor stayed here 42 years, the one before him 42, just long-term, 10 years. I told this church I'd give him 25. So I've got about 20 more years, and then we need to start a succession plan, and I plan on retiring. But ultimately, I would like to see myself in the academy. If not the academy, teaching, preaching, and pastoral principles, because as a practitioner, I can tell you what I learned in my master's program was woefully insufficient for what the real job requires. You know, the master's program wants to teach you Greek and Hebrew and this theology and that doctrine. And that's not 90% of what I do. 90% of what I do is administer a business. And so I'd like to teach at that level, or if not, maybe teach theology in a high school. Uh, to really impact a younger generation. But that's what I would like to do when I retire from this place, educate. Dr. Wesley, are there any traditions, rituals, habits, strange aspects of your job that people who who are outside of it just don't even realize? Like something that you do every day that no one else, it wouldn't even occur to anyone that this is what you do. Strange. Um, There are probably a couple things that come up through there. One, you would never guess the issues that come into this office that I've been exposed to. You would not believe some of the boundaries that are crossed with members. And this is a sensitive subject, but members can become obsessed with a personality and try to manage that at times when someone wants to cross a boundary almost sexually. You wouldn't believe some of the heated debates that happen on church ground around certain issues. I've, I have a great board. I have a great deacon ministry, but it's gotten hot at times and personalities come out and anger and trying to calm those moments. You would think you wouldn't deal with that in a church. I tell people the majority of my job, I carry pacifiers and pampers, that there are people who are crying who need to be quieted. They're causing a fit and they're those who've made a mess that needs to be cleaned up. And I referee fights between individuals. The, the majority of tension in church are between competing programs or ministries or members, and I referee fights to make certain that they're kept well. But those are some of the dirty sides of the job that people probably don't know anything about. Two quick things raised by that. So when someone makes an inappropriate advance, what's the response? You've got to be definitive up front of what's inappropriate and name it as such. You have to say that's inappropriate so that it's clear. 
because of that, I don't meet with behind closed doors with any female members. If I have a meeting with a woman, the door is always open, always, so that uh, my secretary can hear what's going on. And if she closes the door, I will open it again. So just keeping those, those boundaries correct and not allowing myself to be available really to members on a personal level like that. You're a pastor in, just outside of Washington, D.C. It's a political town. I'm sure your constituents have wide-ranging view, political views. There are hot social issues. I mean, you know, gay rights issues, marriage equality, I'm sure, is one that's come up. Where do your personal beliefs come into it? How, where, does the, where do you take your church on those issues? What happens when where you want to take the church maybe differs from what your parishioners believe? Yeah. Very good question. One, we do have the gamut from way right-wing GOP Tea Party to way left-wing liberal uh, within the church. And therefore, some guest preachers who've come have really shot themselves in the foot because they assume African-American, they automatically assume liberal Democrat. And that's not who we are. You know, we're across the board. And there are people who come to church. I recognize this, that there are people who are more versant in political issues in the pew than I can ever be in the pulpit. And one of the worst mistakes you can make is to be ignorant of an issue and bring it forth as if you're an expert in it. This is an environment where people want to come to church to hear politics. Not at all. We, we may allude to what's going on politically, but we respect the different opinions. And so one statement I make continuously when I broach out into an issue that may be relevant in the world, you'll hear this repeatedly. My job is not to make you think what I think, but just to make sure you're thinking and that you're asking these questions of yourself so you know where you stand on this issue of gay rights and, and gay marriage. And just understand, make, make sure you understand the other side and validate that political life in America is not black and white. It's gray. To me, the most dangerous people are the ones who take the extreme. It's either this or that and don't recognize that there is a whole gray area of viable alternatives so that I can stand here, you can stand in a different place, and we respect why we stand where we do. So I was a supporter of same-sex marriage. I will not perform one, but I understand the civil rights issue involved. I understand that this is about American freedom and that we can't cross church and state, and the state shouldn't have to legislate my faith beliefs. There are members who are absolutely different on that, but they understood why I stand where I do, and I understand why they do, and we've learned to love each other in difference. That, to me, is church at its best. When you and I can say we think differently, but you know what? We love each other, and we believe that there's something greater that unites us than our different thought around same-sex unions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working On. The next episode, I'm going to talk to John Flansberg, one half of the fantastic rock band They Might Be Giants, about what it's like to be a rock star and what it's like to go on tour. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.